Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It's a parable that is familiar to us, and, and sometimes we can read it by itself. But this is part of the larger teaching of Jesus Christ, and so that we might come to it in context. I will actually read Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 16, verses 10 through 31. But the sermon will be on the, par- uh, the, the, the parable in verses 19 through 31. Before I read, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come again before you this morning in the name of Christ. We come to beseech you for your Holy Spirit. We come to sit at the feet of the evangelist Luke whom you inspired by your Holy Spirit, to give us these infallible words for our infallible instruction. But we know, dear Lord, without your grace, these words are like to fall on deaf ears and it be taken up by Satan and bear no fruit, or upon shallow hearts that rejoice in the good heard, but is not ready to bear the cross and bear no fruit. Our hearts that are distracted and choked by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. We ask your Lord in the name of Christ that you would deliver us from such things, that your word would not return unto you void, but rather that your spirit would write these words upon our heart that we might bear fruit to you, Fruit to honor Christ Jesus in repentance of our sin, in faith in him, and obedience to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the gospel, chapter 16, verses 10 through 31. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. If, therefore, ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed amongst men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away her husband from her husband, committeth adultery. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us which come, would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have thy brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Jesus began this passage, this chapter, uh, understanding the chapters are an arbitrary division that are from a later period. But this section that is delineated by our chapter begins with Jesus teaching the disciples, as we're told in verse 1, that they will be held responsible for how they use the mammon of unrighteousness, which is worldly riches. And the Pharisees were listening and being of covetous hearts, they scoff because they justify themselves before men and they looked upon riches as the blessing of God and they cherished them. And Jesus uh, rebukes them for their worldly blessings, their worldly religion, their religion that was uh, not before the judgment seat of God, but before the judgment seat of man. Therefore, full of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, And this is why he brings in, in verse 18, by the way, uh, the law of marriages. Because he's using uh, their, uh, their corruption of that honorable institution of marriage so that one could uh, treat wives, as long as they had a legal divorcement, as if they were uh, women of ill repute that they could just exchange amongst themselves. And this was similarly the way that they treated their riches. That it was for their glory and for their honor and for their consumption. But Jesus would warn them in this parable, bringing two things together, because there's really two lessons from this parable. We get the first one in verses 25 and 26, and then we get the second one in that final uh, verse 31. But he calls us, as we hear this, to ask ourselves about worldly riches, because that is the focus of the parable. Uh, we, we tend to read this about the afterlife and the judgment to come, and it's certainly that. But it's in the context of the question about worldly riches. Are they your good, or are they means for you to do good? See, the rich man missed the blessing of his riches. Now, I want to say this about the parable. This is a parable. This isn't history. Yes, there is the name of Lazarus given, and Jesus doesn't often give proper names in his parables. But even the giving of the name of the the beggar has a point. 
in this parable. To compare the, the, the beggar that was not even a human being, that the dogs treated better, in the eyes of God, has an eternal name. He was probably not buried. It's not said that he was buried. He was probably thrown in a pauper's pit and covered up and forgotten. But it is him that has the angels to bear him up to the bosom of Abraham in the pomp of heaven and the kingdom of God. And so it's his name that is remembered in heaven. And certainly the rich man that lived sumptuously every day was well known by his neighbors who is well sought after and looked to by his sycophant family, is forgotten in the dust. And in the story that Jesus brings forth to illustrate, he is illustrating the vanity of what the world esteems and the blessedness of what is esteemed by God even though it be despised by men. So we turn to the rich man, because it is the rich man that is the focus of the parable. Lazarus is here, and we'll come back to Lazarus, uh, I promise. But Lazarus is here uh, as a foil for the rich man, as a, to, to illustrate and to underline the rich man's judgment. Poor Lazarus was, as we see, better treated by the dogs. He was dumped, it says laid, but that's just a nice way of translating. Uh, Being dumped as a beggar, therefore probably lame, at the door of this rich man's house. It may not be the front stoop, but the front gate. He was hungry, desiring to be fed with crumbs from the table. And he was not. He was full of sores. And could have benefited by just a little tender care. Care that God sent in the form of what is in the Middle East often very much despised, street dogs. His life he had received evil things. We get verse 25. But as I mentioned before, he was born by angels to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man received his treasure in vanity. Again, 25, uh, look at it. Abraham said unto this rich man, Son, means that Jesus is talking in the context of the covenant. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. This is what... We get in Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, not Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, a vanity of vanity, all is vanity under the sun. And we remember that that vanity there doesn't mean meaninglessness or void or futile. Sometimes it's translated that in modern translations because what they're translating is the older English word in a certain context. But what vanity means in the context, and particularly as it translates the Hebrew, is the the. The passing away of things, everything is like a breath. That's literally what it means. Everything is a breath. It comes and it goes. It's like a breeze in the summer heat. We don't often get breezes in August in Mississippi. When they do, they are a wonderful treasure. But if we are living for that breeze, we're sore disappointed because it goes away. In the Ecclesiastes, 
He brings forth the good things of the world, the treasures, the wisdom, and it passes away. But the beauty of the book of Ecclesiastes is he also talks about foolishness and trial and hardship. And they also are vanities. The beauty of this world, in a way, is that this is a world of vanity. Uh, God gives good things, but he doesn't give good things to make gods out of them. They're not eternal things. The rich man, he made his treasure out of those things that moth can destroy, that rust can destroy, that thieves can steal. And he had none of that happen. He received his good things in their fullness, but not to the point that they were given. And when vain things become your treasure, when you make the corruptible things of this world your heart and your devotion and your heavenly treasure, then the world that you inherit is a world of corruption. This is why uh, the wicked are said to be ushered into, in the book of Revelation, to the second death, the eternal death. It is an eternity, but it's an eternity of destruction and corruption. This is what James is warning us in, in his fifth chapter. Perhaps thinking of his brother, his half-brother's uh, uh, speech on, on this occasion. And he says, Go to now, you rich men, rich men, weep and howl, for your misery shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be witness against you. And shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire, the laborers, which reap down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them who have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. And you nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. If you read further, you'll note that James doesn't follow through with this paragraph. He lets it sit right there. So those that hear recognize without him saying that there comes a time of reckoning. That what they are reaping, what they will reap from what they have sowed is not good, but eternal torments. He's not talking to all rich men. He's not talking to the likes of Barnabas, who was a rich man and comforted the church with his riches. He's not talking to the, uh, the likes of Abraham. I mean, Abraham is in this parable too. Who was a very rich man in his day. You cannot read Genesis without seeing that he was a sheik of a Bedouin tribe uh, that was very wealthy. But he was also devoted to the Lord and the Lord's people and mercy and kindness. This rich man comes into the inheritance that he himself has been setting up. And it's not that, you know, he's lived for wealth and so he'll receive wealth in all eternity. He's lived for a wealth that is vain. And his eternity is filled with corrupt vanities. Because this life is the life of vanity. The next one is that life of fixedness. As... Abraham tells him, besides all this between us and you is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. 
There is no congress between uh, the saints in heaven and the reprobate in hell. This is the life where things are mixed. This is the life where the wheat and the tares grow up together. But in the next, and then at the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth and eternity, shall be fixed the glories of the Lord. And so the rich man, blessed as he was by riches, squandered them to his destruction. The question is, how do we avoid like fate? And so Jesus puts in the second part of this parable this uh, this this dialogue between uh, uh, the rich man and Abraham, and it seems to us in the dialogue because this is again a parable uh, meant to teach uh, that that perhaps those in hell are capable of charity. He he seems to be uh, looking out for the good of his five brothers that he's afraid he's led to. Uh, a wicked end. He's been a poor example. The point is not Jesus not teaching us that that even those in hell can can seek the good of of those alive, because certainly that's not the answer that Abraham gives. And it's not that they seek to do so. Uh, but this is meant to answer the question of those that are listening to this parable: How do I avoid? the fate of that rich man, particularly if I am rich, but even if I am poor. And the answer to it is simple. Attend to the word of God. The word of the Lord is sufficient. Uh, He answers, Abraham answers in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he, he says, no, 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 that's not enough. If they would repent, send back Lazarus that he might, uh, that they might hear him. And we are reminded of of Paul's critique about the Jews, critique about the Greeks as well. But that they seek a sign, and no sign shall be given. But the gospel, the Greeks seek wisdom; no wisdom given, but the gospel. But uh, the idea is that. That there needs to be something extra. And the idea, the, the answer is no, there does not need to be. If Lazarus was sent back unto the brothers of the rich man, what would he preach? He would preach Moses and the prophets. He would say, hear now the, 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 the commands to love your brethren, to love your Lord in sincerity and truth with your whole heart, and not to put your heart on these deceitful things. In other words, he would just be preaching again. The word of God is not mysterious. It's not cryptic. It's plain. And before us, we read this morning Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 30, 11 through 14. One that Paul picks up in Romans 10 about the sufficiency of the preaching of the gospel. The word is near you. It is at hand. You don't have to go on an impossible quest to heaven or an impossible quest across the seas. You don't have to give of yourselves. It's right at hand. It's in your mouth. It's a great privilege. This is what marks you out as a separate people. Is that you have my word and revelation. And this is what Paul, I'll be writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. uh, That great passage uh, of uh, of our doctrine of the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and following. 
He says, but continue thou, Timothy, and the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou have known the holy scriptures. What holy scriptures did Timothy have as a child? The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There is a gracious sufficiency in the Word of God. Particularly for us who have not just the law and the prophets, but the gospel and the apostles. There is no substitute for the obedience of faith. In John chapter 5, verses 24 through 25, Jesus himself says, he says uh, to those that were inquiring, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. It is sufficient for, the word of Christ is sufficient for life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, says Paul in Romans ten seventeen. But Satan, Satan tries to tell us that it's not enough. When he was in the garden with our first parents, he cast aspersions on the commandment of God that it wasn't enough. That you had to do something extra to be like unto the Lord. To eat and violate even the word of God. And here in our passage this morning, uh, we see uh, that same sort of sinful heart laying the blame on God for not doing enough. Because that's really what's going on in the heart of, of the rich man here in this story. He says, Father Abraham, pray thee, I pray thee that thou wouldst send him unto my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. I came to this place of torment because not enough was done for me. There should be miracles. There should be great signs from heaven. There should be great powers that are given. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't have really affected anything. If you turn back to John 5, speaking of those that would reject his testimony, in verse 36, I have greater witnesses than that of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself which has sent me hath borne witness of me. And ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you for whom he has sent him ye do not believe. Search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you would receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from the God only? Do not think that I would accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. 
For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? This is at the heart of it. This is why Jesus takes their scoffing at him about you can't serve God and mammon. And he takes it to their heart and he puts upon them that the word is eternal, that the law is eternal. It cannot be undone or mitigated because it is God's very nature. Because what they were doing was justifying themselves by saying that their sins didn't really matter. They were not hearing the word. And we see the wisdom of what Abraham says here in the story. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe should one rise from the dead. If you look in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, you see that what happened with the historical Lazarus who was raised from the dead? They didn't believe him. They tried to kill him because he was pointing to Christ. And all the more, uh, the Jews to this day who have not become part of the church, those branches broken off, they, they don't believe the Old Testament. They believe the Talmud, the traditions of the elders that were that as a commentary of the Old Testament. And they hear that and not, if they hear anything at all, and not submit unto Christ. In fact, they oftentimes take parts of the Old Testament and forbid their own people to read them. Because those are they that testify of Christ. And Jesus Christ himself rising from the dead. Those that weren't changed by grace. Turned a deaf ear unto him. So we see in this passage. That we have what we need to come into that comfort, the bosom of Abraham, the bosom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that we don't avail ourselves of it. Now is the time to hear the word of God and not be defensive, but to repent. Not to try to justify yourself before it, but to acknowledge you're a sinner and cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you treasuring up for yourselves with unrighteous mammon, with the Lord's blessings, with whatever that good thing that you have in this earth? Are you treasuring up for yourself wrath against the day of wrath because the way you use it or don't use it? Are you treasuring up mercy for the day of mercy? Worldly riches, are they your good? Are they the way that you do the good that God has commanded you to do? Hereby we know the love of God that he gave his life for sinners. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hath this world goods and see his brother in need and shutteth the bowels of compassion against him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. That's what John says in 1 John 3, 16 and 18. And now is the time. Because when we enter into eternity, there will be no mitigating or altering the judgment there. It's fixed. It's eternal. The only change that we'll look for is the day of the last judgment in which our bodies will finally be reunited. And in the fullness of our humanity, we will, as the bride of Christ, 
worship and joy our Savior unto all eternity. That's the warning, but here's the comfort. Because as I told you, I come back to him. Lazarus is the foil for the rich man, but Lazarus is still there, and we still draw lessons from him. We see in Lazarus the death of vanity. The death of death in Christ. Because death dies for Christ's little lambs. And proper for the parable given at this time in Jesus' ministry, he's carried up into the bosom of Abraham. And the bosom of Abraham is not given as sort of a, a, a section of some sort of pre-gospel hell or heaven or as a purgatory or anything of that nature. It's just the word that Jesus uses to illustrate the comfort of heaven. That this man who is despised and left to die and suffer in his death is taken into the most intimate of embraces by the father of the covenant, into his bosom. How do you enter into a man's bosom? But as gathered as an infant there. You may lie down in misery, but whose name will be remembered in all eternity? It will be those that are his. You may not have a wonderful funeral, and many people come to to remember you. You may not be mourned by a lot of people. But if you're in Christ, who is going to bring you up in the pomp of heavenly trains into the heavenly realm? You may not have many people to comfort you here. But who is going to take those, that soul and embrace him in his arms and wipe away every tear and bring him to his bosom as a shepherd does his lost sheep and take away all those evil things. In Psalm 17, David looks up upon his oppressors and sees that they are enjoying their life now. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life, verse 14, whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure, they are full of children and lead the rest of their substance to their babes. But as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. It does not yet appear that we are the children of God. But we know that when he shall appear, when we see him face to face, we shall be like him even as he is. That's our comfort. And he that, those that have that hope in themselves purify themselves even as he is pure. We can hold loosely to worldly riches, give them away in generosity. We can be kind to those that will not ever be kind to us because we're laying up for ourselves that wonderful treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that in Jesus' name that you would receive us. We pray, dear Lord, that we would give heed to your word. That we would not take it for granted. That we who have the blessing not only of the law and the prophets, but the gospel and the apostles. We ask, Father, that by them we might know our Savior. And that we may be made like unto him. Keep us from the vanity of eternity. 
Cherish us in your bosom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And his people said,